You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Um, This is on page 859 if you have one of the black Bibles. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a seat. I just forced Tan to disobey me. You might have remembered, I don't know, a week or two ago, I said to you, don't read a Bible verse. Um, It's kind of a bumper sticker for life. Don't read a Bible verse. And the point is, you shouldn't read a Bible verse out of context. You should always read at least a paragraph, if not a chapter, and preferably the whole book to get the meaning of anything, lest we take things out of context. The reason I got Tan to read one verse is because I think this verse is the summary of all that we've heard so far from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning's message is a kind of stop and recap what we've learned so far. So this is the last verse in chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is 5, 6, and 7. This is our, I think it's 11th week, and of a 20-week series. So we're kind of at the halfway point of this series in the Sermon on the Mount, and the, the Sermon on the Mount is so big, so profound, so sublime, that almost unavoidably we have been overwhelmed by Jesus' teaching to this point. Even spreading out a chapter over 10 weeks, it's been like trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant, right? A lot of us have felt this way. We've just been inundated with so much. So I thought, It's a good opportunity for us to stop and just um, recap a little about what we've learned and then sort of calibrate for the next uh, 10 or so weeks, God willing, as we finish up the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I don't know what your experience has been of this sermon so far, but you um, might have questions that have come up. I hope you have had questions, things you've been wrestling with as we try and apply this very practical, ethical teaching to our lives. Um, If that's you, then throughout the sermon today, I would love for you to text in questions, any questions you might have, anything that comes up, has come up over the last 10 weeks or perhaps comes up in this morning's recap, Um, there'll be a number you can text on most of the slides as I speak and then um, at the end of the service I'll try and answer and if not answer then come back to you with a better explanation um, of what you've been wrestling with um, at the end of the service, okay? So we're going to do that this morning again just by way of of recap and trying to, as best we can, gather together this incredible teaching and put it into practice in the life of our church. All right? How you guys been going with the Sermon on the Mount, by the way? I found it life-changing. Challenging? Any other adjectives? Say again? Quite a climb. Ah, nice. Yeah. My wife and I, um, don't, we don't buy a lot of stuff for our house, but when we do, we want it to be really good stuff. So we're, we're the kind of couple who like do the research and then find the best thing and then save until we can afford it, okay? Um, and so we did that recently with this chimenea 
It's like an outdoor fire place. And uh, um, so we bought this one locally made in uh, Castlemaine, and it's like this cast iron big pot belly thing, weighs 100 kilos. And, uh, and so yesterday was freezing, and last night, uh, in the midst of the dark, freezing weather, I was trying to light this chimney, and I was failing and freezing and it was frustrating. I tried to do the, uh, the TP method of lighting the fire and the problem was I had, the wood I had was too good. It was, it was like red gum that I had split and it was just too good, it was too strong, too, too meaty. And so I was having all this trouble and um, felt like I should just give up and then I thought maybe I'll just try a different approach and so I went from TP to log cabin. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and it just went up, burned brightly, gave heat and light and warmth. And that, what happened last night, is kind of a parable for my experience of studying the Sermon on the Mount. Up until this point in my life, really, I had found it nothing but cold and dark somewhat frustrating because my approach to the Sermon on the Mount had been like perhaps like some of yours and like the great reformer Martin Luther who saw it just as this kind of this this law that if the if the old covenant law was kind of this high and hard to get over Jesus makes his law like way beyond and and the only function of it therefore is just to drive us to our knees and say we can never keep this law we need God's grace that's the way he viewed it it's a law that leads us to grace and so when it, reading it like that it left me cold it left me in the dark because there's no real function to it apart from getting me to admit that I can't do it and once I have come before God and admitted that I need his grace, then I'm kind of just stuck there. There's nothing further for me to do. Coming at it this time and immersing myself in it for the purpose of being able to share with you has been like the flame taking for the first time and heat and light emanating from it. Because what I've come to see is that far from being some sort of unattainable law that just drives us to God's grace, this is real, practical, ethical teaching for every one of Jesus' disciples to take seriously and to put into practice in their lives. It is a recipe for the good life. It is an invitation to flourishing in God's kingdom. So I hope you've picked that up over the weeks we've been attending to this sermon so far. And you need to know that as we do this kind of recap, that's where I'm coming from. This is a recipe for flourishing. This is an invitation to the good life. So I'm going to recap 10 weeks, and I'm not going to be able to tell you everything that we've learned so far. I tried doing that, and I ended up with a two-hour sermon and so then I put that in the bin and all of God's people said, hallelujah. <laughs> Can't do that. If you're here for the first time this morning, I'm sorry, um, you might not get all of this. But if you want to go back, 
and take a look at those messages where we've really just taken small chunks of the text and taken our time to work through it week by week, you can go to our website. Um, you just need to go to our website and slash SOTM, Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see audio and video for everything. And I promise you, uh, I promise you, yes be yes, no be no, that in the next, sometime in the next two weeks, you'll get the series guide for this series, which is like 50 or 60 small pages of content with all of this in it, okay? So, you can access all of that. Our purpose this morning is just to hit some of the highlights, refresh our memories, and calibrate us for the next 10 weeks. Also, to trigger trigger any questions you might have that you might want to text through that we can get to at the end of the service, all right? You ready to go? All right, let's go right back to the beginning. Before the Sermon on the Mount even starts, this is where we began. Chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew makes this really clear in his text. This is a turning point in his biography, all right? He says, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus' preaching ministry begins with a call to repent, and that frames this whole sermon. This whole sermon, in one sense, is a call to come back to God, to come back to real relationship with God. Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That means he's talking about himself. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is among us, and in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven begins to be worked out on earth. The climax of this comes when he comes again, where his kingdom is all that there is in a new heavens and new earth. But the work began with his coming into human flesh. The word became flesh, made its dwelling among us. That's the kingdom of God. So his call is repent because the kingdom of heaven is here, it's among us, it's been brought near. And if that's the case, then you need to repent of this outward surface level religion and start living wholehearted, whole body, righteous lives engaging with who God is and what he's done. That's what living in a kingdom means. That's what following Jesus will mean. And he, and he sort of illustrates that over the next three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. It's all of life, all about Jesus. Might ring a bell. We haven't trademarked that yet, but uh, that's what it's all about. So he, he goes from that call to repentance through chapter 4. He calls his disciples, Peter, Andrew, right? Drop your nets. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow me. He takes those disciples who follow him and then a bunch of other people, crowds of people it says, takes them to the top of a mountain and sits down to teach them. So he has his disciples who have gathered at his feet. He's the rabbi. They're his his uh, students. And then he has a crowd of people around who are listening in. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 5, the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, so that's the setting. And here, if you're Matthew's Hebrew audience, you're getting all of these symbolic, like... um, 
explosions going off in your mind. Here is a prophet sitting down on top of a mountain and speaking truth to people. This is the, the fulfillment of Moses, the prophet of God, getting revelation from God and then sharing it with the people of God. It's the fulfillment of that because not only is this a prophet saying what God has told him to say, but this is God telling us about himself. So he sits down and he begins to teach them. And he begins as many, if not most, philosophers would in the first century. Anyone who's got some big ideas, anyone who's drawing a crowd of followers, the philosophers of this day would begin with Beatitudes. They would begin with a kind of recipe for flourishing. Every... every tribe and nation in tongue in human history has been obsessed with this idea of human flourishing. It's what's driven civilizations, whether they're Christian or Jewish or otherwise, we're driven by the sense we want to flourish. The pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of fulfillment, the pursuit of life this is what drove philosophers in Jesus, that Jesus is not unique in giving a bunch of Beatitudes very much in keeping with the teacher of, of his day. The, what's unique about his is that they are crazy. They're upside down. They're shocking. They're unexpected. So he sits down, and as most philosophers do, he, he gives them his beatitudes. He's, he says, this is the good life. This is the recipe for flourishing. And these are them. You got them all out there on one Slide, and I'm going to go through each one very, very quickly. He says, blessed, or another translation is happy, or the best one that gets the whole sense of the word is, is flourishing, the way I read it. Flourishing, blessed. So, so this is not just God is pleased with you, which is what blessing tends to mean, but this is you will experience flourishing. It's, it's, it's coming from above and it's coming up from the ground, all right? So flourishing, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Why does the kingdom of heaven belong to the poor in spirit? Because the poor in spirit are those who come before God and say, I have nothing to offer. I'm poor in spirit. I'm bankrupt. Spiritually, I have nothing to give you. This is, remember, this is the um, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee comes before God, I thank you that I'm so good. I thank you that I fast and that I give and that I'm not like those filthy tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And, and then the tax collector comes before God and, 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 and doesn't even look up at him. Beats his chest. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says he goes away justified. Not the good guy. Not the not the Pharisee. Why? Because he's poor in spirit. He acknowledges, I have nothing to bring. That's why they are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who walk through this world, conscious of what the kingdom of God is like, and, and grief-stricken over what life is actually like. The disconnection between God's intention, good intention for his good creation, and their experience of sickness and sin and death makes them mourn. 
makes them grieve. Not least because of their own participation in it, right? Not just that the world out there is so bad and we're great because we're here on a Sunday morning singing songs, but no, that we're all participating in what's broken and in the breaking of it. it makes them mourn, but they will be comforted. They will be comforted as they see God's kingdom grow. The influence of God's kingdom grow on the earth up until and including the point where it is completely renewed. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Again, this is upside down thinking. The thinking of the world and the thinking that makes sense to us is that nice guys finish last. If you want to get ahead, if you want to be on the Fortune 500 list, you've got to be ruthless. You've got to be all about self-promotion, self-realization, assertiveness. Those of you who are doing well in business know this to be the case. In some ways, you've got to set aside some of your beatitudes in order to make something good of yourself because the humble don't do well, the proud do, the self-assured do. Jesus flips that on, his head, on its head and says, if you are humble like I am humble, you will forego so much of what the world is after. You will forego temporary riches and acclaim, but you will inherit the earth. You will inherit the earth. That is, God's new kingdom, his new heavens and new earth will be yours because you followed me, which is the pathway to life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, unlike all of us who have ever lived, who hunger and thirst for anything but righteousness. Like just, what it, what, just think about it. What are the things that you get really excited about? What are the things that you really deeply hunger and thirst for? Whether it's the success and acclaim and notoriety that he spoke against in the last beatitude, whether it's temporary stuff, like just, you know, cars and houses and money and whatever. Material things. So long as we pursue and hunger and thirst for those things, we'll never be satisfied. We know this, right? We know this. You got the iPhone 6 after hungering and thirsting for it for months, and six months later, they brought out the seven, and suddenly you're hungry and thirsty again. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. You will actually experience it, and it will be truly satisfying. Righteousness. Whole body, heart deep behavior that accords with God's nature and will and kingdom, living like Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. We're going to see this big time in his teaching on prayer, which we're going to get to in about four weeks. The Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Those who are merciful will receive mercy. Those who forgive others receive forgiveness because they get grace. 
And only those who get grace can receive forgiveness. The merciful will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Why do the Pharisees not see Jesus for who he is? They see him and they kill him as a heretic, as a blasphemer. They don't see him as God because they can't see God because they're not pure in heart. They do works of righteousness, but they don't have a heart that is in sync, in rhythm with God's own heart. Those who have the heart of God will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Like father, like son. If you're a peacemaker, if you spend your life bringing peace, shalom, it's the Old Testament word, right? God's presence, which brings wholeness and flourishing and reconciliation and restoration. If you are a peacemaker, you'll be a son and daughter of God because you'll be in your father's business. Chad mentioned this last week, right? You'll be taking after your daddy. He's a peacemaker. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus anticipates that if you follow these, this recipe for flourishing, you will be persecuted. This is why it's upside down. This is why some hear his message and say, I'm going to go to that other guy because his philosophy was all about health and wealth and prosperity and good times. Whereas Jesus says, this is, going to, this is going to enable you to flourish and people will hate you for it. But even in the midst of persecution and suffering, you'll be blessed. You'll be flourishing. So this is the good life. This is the flourishing life. And living the good life, he goes on to say, will bring about good in the world. Being good will affect good. Living in a way that helps us flourish, in turn, helps the God's creation flourish. That's what he means when he, go, he talks about salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are things that have a good effect on the world. Salt is good. Light is good. And they have a kind of restorative effect in the world. As we live as salt and light, we, we manifest the glory of God on the earth. So verse 16, you remember he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Living this way, according to this recipe for flourishing, makes people look at the way that we're living and give glory to God. It makes the, the, the glory of God manifest among us. This is a very old covenant idea. So you remember this guy, got the best name in the world, New Testament scholar, Charles Qualls. His parents knew what they were doing when they named him that. Okay? They had Qualls and thought, we'll add to that Charles. All right, and God bless him. It's got a great commentary, and he says, Throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, the shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people, Jesus and his disciples, fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of God among the nations. 
So your missionary purpose is not just to hand out tracts telling people that they'll go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. Your missionary purpose is more than that. It's to manifest the glory of God, which means living in a way that echoes the way that Jesus lived. That's how the glory of God is manifest. We saw it perfectly in him when he was on, on this earth. And now we're called to be little Jesuses, to manifest the glory of God among us. That's our mission as a, a church. My wife would hate me for saying this. She would hate to be the sort of post, poster girl for this. But it, it just struck me when I was thinking about this that I, I, she does so much ministry that I don't even hear about. And it's mainly with people outside of the church, right? That she just, she's one of those people that just, people are drawn to her. Normally with really heavy problems. Like India stopped and said to her the other day, why do people always come to you? With their problems. People don't come to me and just give me their problem. And, and it's because it's like a spiritual gift that God's given her a mission. And so anyway, I come home the other day and she's talking to someone I've never seen before. Actually, no, I had seen walking up and down the street. She's talking to her. This woman is in tears, like just giving her life story to Renee. This happens to her all the time. Just seems random. And Renee was like comforting her and listening to her and talking about how we might be able to help her. And at one point, as I'm standing there, just kind of on the outside, this woman dries her eyes and just looks at Renee, like sort of confused and says, who are you? Who are you? This ought to be kind of how the world interacts with us. Do they just stop and say, who are you that you are living this way, this counterintuitive way? This way of humility and, 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 and seeking the good of those around you, this, this way of salt and light, who are you? A better question, or a way to reframe it would be, whose are you? Whose are you? Or, or even, where are you? Whose am I? I'm, I'm Jesus' disciple. And where am I? I'm in the kingdom of God. Living in Caroline Springs, yes but located in the kingdom of God. This is how we live in the kingdom of God in the midst of a broken and hurting world. So that whole section, verse 1 to 16, that's kind of like the first part, and, and here's, here's how I've summarized it. I've just, I, I ripped this straight out of the, the series guide that you're definitely, absolutely, yes, BS, going to get in the next two weeks. Jesus' vision for wholeness and human flourishing. It says every community in all of history has sought to flourish. To this end, God's prophets, sages have offered, offered wisdom for the good life. In this sense, Jesus is not unique as he delivers his own charter for human flourishing. However, unlike all others before or since, right, every self-help book, every TED talk, all of the, like every philosophy, every religion, unlike all of those, Jesus is not merely seeking to, live, to deliver a message received from God. He is God. Sitting atop a mountain, interpreting scripture, teaching with an authority only God has. Remember, when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last verse is the effect that it has. The people are astonished. It's not because the teaching is new. It's because no one's taught with this kind of authority. 
an authority only God has. Because He made us, because He knows us, because He loves us, He calls us to a whole body, heart-deep, righteous way of living. It tastes like salt, and it shines like light, and even when it hurts, it's blessed and flourishing and downright good. Next bit. You guys texting me right now? I hope so. Otherwise, it's going to be real quiet at the end of the service. All right. Next section. Um, 17 to 48. This is all that we've just done in the last however many weeks it took us. Jesus addresses how his disciples, how, that's you, that's me, how his followers, how his disciples are going to interact with, what's their relationship going to be like to the Torah, right? to, the, to the Old Testament, to the law and the prophets. And he's really concerned that we don't come to him and say, oh, phew, we can get rid of the Old Testament now, just rip out that first two-thirds because we've got this new thing. He's like, no. I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not to come to abolish but to fulfill. And then he gives us this bombshell, all right? Verse, there's a few bombshells in this, um, in this sermon, like a ton of them actually. It's carnage. But one of the really big ones is in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. The emoji is that... My dad sends me that emoji all the time. The blowing up head one. The Pharisees are the most holy, the most zealous people on earth. They're not, by the way, just the bad guys that they, you know, in the Jesus movies, they're always like, they're dressed like Voldemort or something, and they speak in really deep voices like this. And those, that's a caricature, caricature, right? The, The Pharisees are zealous. They want the kingdom of God to come on the earth. They've arranged their whole life around it. Their problem, as Jesus points out, at least those of them that are hypocrites, their problem is that they have made it all about external things. Doing the right thing instead of being the right thing. It's all about hands and no heart. However, when his hearers hear this, no one's getting into the kingdom of heaven unless you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Every one of them just would have been utterly depressed and completely despairing because nobody exceeds the Pharisees when it comes to righteousness. The reason that we ought not despair about this is because all of Jesus' people, 
all of God's people who have been saved and have been given a new heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells, all of us will exceed the Pharisees in righteousness. Why? Because we will be doing the right thing with the right heart. That's made possible by God's grace. The Pharisees were doing the right thing, disconnected from the right heart, and therefore they failed the test of righteousness. Remember, righteousness, whole body, heart deep behavior. So he gives us six examples of how this is worked out, right? Taking the old covenant law and saying and, and showing how his disciples will exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees who are keeping the old covenant law but not exceeding it, who are keeping it outwardly, but not internally. That's what all of those, you know, the examples of murder and adultery and divorce and oath-keeping and insults and enemies, all of that is to demonstrate how someone who follows Jesus will exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. How, by living out of our heart, our very inner person in obedience to God, we will exceed the Pharisees and therefore inherit the kingdom of God. So then, let me just kind of summarize. Having learned all that we learned from verse, seven, uh, verse 1 to 48, right? Everything through chapter 5. This is, the, this is my kind of summary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount as we have it at this point. The Sermon on the Mount is a call. You need to hear this. Remember, it's a sermon. The, the, the New Testament word for preaching is exhortation. So this is a call. It's a call to repent, a call to heart, like heart transformation. You need to not just hear these words with your ears, but receive them into your heart. It's a call to heart deep, whole person discipleship. This makes absolute nonsense of nominal church going, nominal Christianity. Like turning up to church for that hour and a half on Sunday morning and then just living completely according to your own set of beatitudes? Nonsense. Heart deep, whole person discipleship. It's a practical ethic for all who have repented of sin, enthroned Jesus as King and now seek to make all of life all about Him. Trademark. It's an invitation to wholehearted, single-minded devotion to God, His will, His nature, His coming kingdom. Opposite to hypocrisy, it's a recipe for wholeness. So, let me just hit this real quick. Remember, hypocrisy... Hypocrisy, there's a couple of different ways to speak about hypocrisy. The way we commonly speak about hypocrisy is when someone says one thing and does another. So I'm up here saying, you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't commit, if you commit adultery, you're going to hell. And then during the week, I'm committing adultery. I'm not, all right, by the way. But this, this is an example. Don't clip that out. That's hypocrisy, right? I'm telling everyone else to be faithful to their wife and then during the week I'm doing whatever I want. 
That's, that is hypocrisy, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. For Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, hypocrisy is doing the right thing, not committing adultery, for example. Praying, fasting, giving to the poor, doing the right thing, disconnected from the heart. Doing it without thinking. Doing it disconnected from a renewed, restored, spirit-filled heart. That's hypocrisy. That's what he calls out. So therefore, the opposite to hypocrisy is what he's calling us to. Wholeness. We use the word wholehearted, right? For something that's completely devoted, soul, mind and strength. Wholehearted. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's calling us to. And by the way, this is not to the super-Christians, the prayer warriors, the people who come to church every week. This is just disciples. Anyone who calls himself Christian. The common accusation from the world that Christians are hypocrites is tragic. And true. But it's so tragic because that's the very thing that Jesus calls us away from. Wholehearted wholeness. It's an invitation to wholeness. Which is why I don't like the translation of the verse that we come to this morning. This is the last thing I want to do. I don't like the translation in our, in our very good translation, which I love, Christian Standard Bible, love it, or just about every other English translation. I don't like the translation, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't like it because I don't think it's, a, I, I, I don't, because, back it up, I see this verse as being monumental in the whole sermon. I see it as the summary verse for this whole chapter, and I don't think that, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is a good summary of what he's just said. I don't think it connects with the heart or the purpose, or the key concepts of his message. Hands up if you are here this morning and you speak more than one language. That's a few of you. And probably more than the average church in Australia because we have such a beautifully multicultural church. So you know, if you speak a second language, you know that there is no such thing as this, this myth of a one-to-one, word-for-word translation. Words don't work like that, right? They're just, it's not maths. And so when you take something that was likely spoken in Aramaic and then written down in Greek and then you translate it into English, you have lots of trouble a lot of the time getting the right sense of what was said. Now, I think Bible translators who have been working on this for a couple of thousand years do an impeccable job and we're helped by the fact that Greek is very technical, Koine Greek is very technical. There's lots of tenses. There's lots of information in the words that tells you this is what the person meant. 
But, and, I'm, and I don't go into Greek stuff very much because it's boring and you would end up hating me, and it's also a little bit pretentious. But it's worth just saying here, this word that he uses for what we translate perfect, the Greek word teleos, has multiple possible meanings in English, none of which really get it perfectly right. And we know this because if we take that word and look back in the Old Testament, that which Jesus was drawing from, the language that he spoke, the thing he knew off by heart, that word teleos doesn't mean perfect through the Old Testament. What it means much more, is much more evocative and much more in keeping with what he's been saying is this sense of completeness, wholeness. We get to the word perfect because we translated the Latin, which was perfectus. And perfectus actually means more like what I just said than what we think of as perfect, like unblemished, without fault. The Latin and the Greek and the Aramaic all have the much stronger sense of completeness, wholeness, wholeheartedness, which is exactly what Jesus has been talking about wholeness so when he says be as we say be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect as it has it in this translation he's obviously thinking very very obviously thinking of the old covenant again leviticus 19 says Speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's obviously in his mind, right, as he says this. The reason he doesn't say and just quote, as he's been doing all through that whole section, quoting word for word from the Old Testament, the reason I think that he doesn't just say, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, is because in his day, holiness had come to mean, through the, the Pharisees who had got this wrong, it had come to mean, like, being holy means doing the right thing. Being externally righteous. If, if you said to someone, who's, who's someone holy in your community in Jesus' day? They would have said, the Pharisees, they're holy. Look at them. Fasting, giving, praying. So Jesus doesn't just say be holy because he knows it's going to undermine his whole point. They're just going to think, oh, we need to do the right thing. Instead, he changes it and he changes it meaningfully. He doesn't say be holy. He doesn't even say, in my view, be perfect. He says be whole. Be wholehearted. Don't be one thing externally and something different internally. Don't be a hypocrite. Be whole. Be all in. Get it? This is why he says, right, to the, to the Pharisees, Matthew 23, is, you just get Jesus turned up to 11. As he's speaking against this version of holy, as be holy as I'm holy. Against this version of, of godliness that is external and not integrated not whole, not wholehearted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He's not talking about doing the washing up. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, right? Your heart, so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside. Robes, right? External works of righteousness. But inside are full of the dead bones, or the bones of the dead, and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, hypocrites. Instead of that, be whole. Be wholehearted. My, my preferred translation, I don't think this is in any Bible ever, but my preferred translation is be wholehearted. So, therefore, be wholehearted as your heavenly Father is wholehearted. And that's the best translation of be teleos as your Father in heaven is teleos. Be whole, be whole, be complete. Be wholehearted gets the thrust of what he's been preaching. This is his big idea for his sermon. Be wholehearted as your heavenly Father is wholehearted. Let me just run this through one experiment. Somewhere else in the Gospel of Matthew where this is vindicated, I think. And makes way more sense of what's going on. So, Matthew 19, you have this, um, this interaction. You know this well, all right? Someone came up to him and asked, Teacher, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Again, misses the point. Do you think if this guy went and did that, he would be perfect, blameless, faultless? No. Much better if you want to be wholehearted. Jesus looks at this young man, sees that he's zealous for the kingdom of God, but also sees that he's not in it fully. He has not surrendered his whole heart to God. Why? He still loves his money. Through Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to say, that love of money is going to keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. You're divided. You're not wholehearted. If you want to be wholehearted, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Makes way more sense of the whole ethic of Jesus' teaching. You might not be convinced, and I hope you're not convinced simply because I got up here and said it into a microphone. If you want to do more study on that, then have at it. The well is deep. But as I stand before God and will be held accountable for what I say to you from this pulpit or whatever this is, that's what I think is going on here. That's what I think 
is the best translation that gets to the heart of what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount is this radical, countercultural, counterintuitive call to make all of life all about Jesus. The rest of our time together on this earth is trying to figure out how we can best help one another live that out. I'm going to finish there. From here, we move into the third part of Jesus' sermon. It's going to take us three Sundays. We're going to start it next week, then have a couple of weeks break, and then finish those two weeks in four weeks' time. Those three things that Jesus addresses are the three pillars of, of piety for the Jews. Prayer, well, first of all, giving to the poor, what's known as almsgiving, A-L-M-S, almsgiving. Something that Christians were really concerned with until the last hundred or so years. Giving to the poor, praying and fasting. So that's where we're going to spend our time in the next three sermons in this series. But until then, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to stand and sing God's praises together. Father, why don't you stand with me, guys? Why don't we stand? Stand as those, if this is true of you, those who are followers of Jesus. Father, we are your people and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You have called us to live in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God. And you have given us your Holy Spirit and a new heart so that we might live wholeheartedly. And yes, we stumble and we falter and we need your constant forgiveness and mercy and grace. But our desire, our heart's desire, is to make all of life all about you. Our heart's desire is to live whole body, heart deep righteousness. So would you help us, Lord? Help us to help one another to live the life that Jesus lived. To manifest the glory of God in the midst of of this broken world. Help us. Please help us to make all of life all about Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. As expected, I went way too long in the sermon again. So it's handy that we've just got two questions to get to. Um, I'll address these two. And then if there's anyone who's just got a question who didn't text it, it's just occurring to you now, we can do that, and then we're going to sing and, and, and be done. All right, so here we go. Uh, question one says, We know that it's only through believing in what Jesus has done that we are saved. But how can we encourage one another to live a life God wants for us without making it look like it's about what we do. That's the right question. Um, 
But I would say it is about what we do. Not in the sense that you're speaking of there. So that's right. We are saved apart from what we do. Praise Jesus. We are saved apart from works. In fact, you are saved before the foundation of the world was laid. Before you did anything good or bad, while we were dead in transgressions and sins. Ephesians 1 and 2. Read that and you'll get a sense. Praise God. He hasn't rewarded me according to my works when it comes to whether I'm saved or not. However, it is about what you do because God's pre-foundational grace to you has an effect in the way that you live. If there is no effect, then you can be sure there was no grace in the first place. There is too much nuance, really, required to understand this for the time that we have right now, but I hope this is making sense to you. Yes, you are saved apart from works, and yes, you are saved to works. Works as in a way of living that is congruent with your status as an adopted child of God. So, our, the Protestant failure for the last 500 years, which we walk and live in, perhaps without knowing it, our great failure has to be so sure about God's grace to us apart from our works that we then just live as if we've got the fire insurance policy against hell and that's all that counts. This whole idea that I put my hand up when I was 15 and went to the front of the church and they baptized me, so now I'll just figure it out as I go along. And when I die and come before King Jesus, oh, I've got that, I've got my baptism certificate. Or i got whatever. It's completely foreign to everything we've got here in the New Testament. So, the best example of this is actually the Apostle Paul. Because there's no one on the face of the earth and in the history of the world who gets salvation by grace more than he does. Our understanding of what it means to be saved by grace apart from works comes through reading his letters. Right? He gets it completely. The strongest affirmation of that fact, that it's not about what you do. And yet, you've got to read things like uh, 1 Corinthians 9. This is what he says about what Christian life looks like. I'm saved by grace apart from works. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run! Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Whoa! That's his picture of the Christian life. And with no mention of you earning your salvation. And everything he said about coming by grace, he says, you know these Christians? They're athletes. They're peak 
Olympians. Peak Olympians do mental things in order to be in shape for their event. They go home early. They don't eat that thing. They, you know, what you fill the blank. I'm not an athlete, but, right? I don't run aimlessly. I don't beat the air. Everything, my whole life is trained around the self-discipline that comes with being a follower of Jesus. And then that shocking statement in the end, otherwise, if I start getting loose, I'm going to have preached to other people and I'll be disqualified. I'll fall away. So, it's not about what you do and it's absolutely about what you do. We are saved by grace apart from works and we are called to a life of radical, radical self-discipline. That's why Jesus says, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. An instrument of execution. Hope we got that. Uh, what, this one other question... Um, which is a helpful kind of other half of the, of the whole, probably. Um, so, uh, this person says, as you mentioned, it's tempting to and often difficult not to read this sermon feeling a weight of work with every sentence and then feel the overwhelming sense of failure to live as Christ is calling us to live. I often read this and say, this is impossible. I'm so thankful for the grace of God, but to the person sitting there listening to Christ talk, potentially feeling this burden of guilt, where was the comforting grace in this sermon? I think you mean his sermon, maybe mine, maybe both. Where was the comforting grace for them as they realize how far short they have fallen? Good. I think the comforting grace is not found so much in Jesus' sermon or perhaps even in the one that you just heard. The comforting grace comes as we read the whole biography. Don't ever stop at the end of chapter 7. That's not the end. Read on. See Jesus, God in human flesh, full of grace and truth. Not just full of sublime ideas, but full of grace. See Jesus going to the cross. He says in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. He's not an innocent victim of circumstance. He lays down his life for his sheep. For the person who's feeling guilty, Jesus lays down his life for you. This is the reason why the cross is our symbol and not a mountain. Sermon on the Mount is amazing. You can build your life on that thing. But our symbol is the cross because Jesus doesn't just give us this teaching for living, self-help style, TED talk, mic down or even dropped and then walk off the stage back to his apartment complex or mansion. He walks from that mountain to the hill of Golgotha. He dies a brutal bloody death on the cross for you in your place. So if you're feeling guilty, you know where that guilt has been dealt with? On the cross of the same person whose teaching made you feel guilty. 
Jesus is both the wise philosopher, prophet, and the priest, and the sacrifice. So if this teaching leaves you feeling guilty, I hope that that is more conviction than despair. Conviction is good. Despair is unwanted. Despair is unfruitful. To the extent that we despair, we were probably relying on ourselves to be good people, and we've just failed our own expectation of ourselves. Conviction is where I know what Jesus is calling me to. I know that the Spirit is living within me, enabling me to follow him, and I keep falling short. That's a good place to be. The solution for guilt, the healing balm for guilt, the reassurance and comfort for those who feel guilty is found in the cross of Jesus. There is thou, therefore, no condemnation for those followers of Jesus, faltering, stumbling followers of Jesus, who are in Christ Jesus. All right. Last questions before we wrap this thing up. I hope that you guys are in a the kind of community, whether it's a small group, family group, or a friendship group, where you can talk about these things and work them out through you know, verbally processing what we've been hearing from the scriptures. I really hope that's, that, that your life becomes a kind of proving ground, a testing ground for this. And so, again, we can effectively help one another to be real, true, heartfelt, wholehearted followers of Jesus.